this morning? Am I, uh, am I on? I'm on, okay, good. I thought so. I knew I was on. We have, uh, we have the great privilege this morning of uh, being together for worship and being together around the Lord's table. It really is, uh, it's an, as we've already suggested, it's an indescribable privilege. It's uh, an unfathomable privilege. It's one of those things that can become so familiar to us that we, we can lose sight of the great significance of it. We have this, this way of saying familiarity breeds contempt. Um, and even if it doesn't breed real contempt, it can breed a, a sort of a, um, a, a commonplaceness in our thinking, those things that are familiar. Uh, but we don't want that to be the case. We want uh, very much for the Lord by his spirit to be present with us as we gather at this table to be reminded of his, of his great grace and his great love for sinners like us. And so that's what we want to do as we look at this passage. We want to be reminded of, of the significance of the Lord's Supper. And I would encourage you, even as you hear what is very familiar to you, read and as you participate in something that uh, I think is probably very familiar, that you be prayerful and that you, that you call upon God yet again by his spirit to, to take these things and press them home to you and, and convey to you the great significance of, of these things. So with that, let me encourage you to hear Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let us pray together. Father, please, uh, again by Your Spirit, um, come and help us. Uh, This is Your Word. We're grateful for it. But we need Your Spirit. We need for Your Spirit and Your Word to come together and exert that same mighty, life-creating, transforming power that they effected at the creation. Um, We need, Lord, your spirit. So please come and help us to understand, to apprehend, and then to go from this place believing that these things are true. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let me me ask you to use your imagination a little bit and, and try to uh, imagine that you're having a dream. You know, dreams uh, feel really real when you're having them. They don't feel like dreams. It's only after you wake up that you realize it was a dream. But imagine that you're, you're dreaming that you've been invited to the White House to, uh, to a state dinner with the president. And you get to the dinner, you're at the dinner, and suddenly you realize why you didn't realize this before. Um, I don't know. It's your dream. Um, but you get to the White House and you're at this uh, state dinner and there are all these dignitaries and you're seated right next to the President of the United States and you suddenly realize that you're dressed in your Saturday work clothes, which for me is a pair of um, badly worn cut-off shorts, a sleeveless T-shirt, and a baseball cap. And, you, you know, you, you realize that everybody is looking at you. Um, and then you realize this other thing, and again, why you didn't realize this before, I don't know, it's your dream. Uh, you realize that you voted for a Democrat. And that's beginning to get around the table. And then you really wonder, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Uh, and then thankfully you wake up and you realize it was just a dream. But there's, in the midst of your dream, there's an acute sense of panic, isn't there? What am I doing here? That's, that's, a, that's a great question to be asking this morning. It's really, it's really a question uh, that each of us could be asking. What am I doing here? What are you doing here? What am I doing here? Um, the gospel really is about undeserving, unworthy sinners being in a place they have no place being, doing things they have no business doing. You know, as, as much as you talk about this, as much as you think about this, as much as you hear this, uh, you know, you never tire, do you, of being reminded of the truth of the gospel, the realities of the gospel. That's, uh, again, what we want to think about this morning. Um, And what I'd like to suggest is that you sort of distill it as we look at this passage down to to three things. Um, Three things that we're being reminded of. Good three-point sermon. Three things that you're being reminded of. 
First, that Jesus was determined to die. And then second, that Jesus was determined to die for sinners. And then third, that Jesus was determined to die for sinners for their joy. That they might know His joy. That they might be gathered up into His joy. Now the setting for this, the setting for this passage obviously is the Passover. You see that in verse 17. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, the first couple of verses of chapter 26, Jesus tells his disciples, reminds them that the Passover is coming and that it is at the Passover when he will be betrayed. Now, if you were with us last Sunday evening, some of you were, we um, we were reminded last Sunday evening of the Passover. Exodus chapter 12 is the story of the exodus of the people out of their bondage in Egypt as they are set on their path toward the promised land, the land of, of fullness, a land flowing with milk and honey and all of these uh, incalculable blessings. But the thing that affects that exodus, the thing that leads to that Exodus is that Pharaoh's willfulness and pride, his determination to keep these people in bondage is finally broken. Remember that? It's a, it's a deliverance that God effects and accomplishes, and he accomplishes it by breaking the will, at least temporarily, of Pharaoh. And you remember how he did that. If you, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12 and you read especially verses 26 and following, you remember that on the Passover night, after every family in Israel had taken a spotless, blemish-free young lamb into the household, where that spotless, blemish-free lamb lived with that family for five days, being fed and nourished and cuddled and cared for by that family. On the fifth day, the 14th day of the month, but the fifth day after this lamb is taken into the household, you remember what happened. The lamb was slain. Its blood then was spread across the lintel and the doorposts of each of those homes so that on the Passover night when the angel of death passed over the whole nation. God made a distinction between those who were under the blood and those who were not under the blood. And on the Passover night, a great cry and lamentation was heard throughout the whole land. And this is where Exodus twelve twenty six is so poignant and powerful. In every household, from Pharaoh's house to the house of a criminal in prison, the firstborn child died. And so from Pharaoh's house all throughout the land, there was the sound of wailing and of death and of mourning and of grief. In every house except those homes that were covered by the blood. Covered by the blood of the lamb that was slain. Taken into the home. 
loved, cherished, snuggled with, cuddled. Something that people's hearts had grown attached to. What I said last Sunday night is, you begin to realize as God paints this picture of what redemption is all about, what deliverance is all about, one of the things that you see is that redemption is costly. It will cost somebody something dearly. On the Passover night, as the cry is heard throughout the land, the Israelites can hear the cry and understand that the angel of death and judgment has struck down the firstborn in every household save their own households. Those households who are protected by the blood, under the blood. Jesus, meeting with his disciples, instituting this last supper, occurs during the feast of Passover, during the annual celebration the annual remembrance of the exodus that was effected and accomplished by God through death. As people were preserved and kept safe under blood. Life given for lives. The blood was shed. A life was given, sacrificed for the lives of those in those households. And then after that blood was shed, the flesh of the lamb was eaten. You read that in Exodus chapter 12. The lamb was roasted and it was all, all of it to be consumed. And what wasn't consumed then was to be burned. The life was given for safety and protection. The life was consumed for sustenance. That's why we eat. We eat in order to sustain life. The lamb wasn't just slain. The lamb was consumed, eaten, to sustain life. Both of those things. And so here on the Passover, as Jesus gathers with his disciples, these ideas, these these symbols, these pictures, these practices have deeply affected the minds and the hearts of the disciples. These ideas are deeply embedded in their souls. And so then when Jesus says to his disciples in verse 2, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up and crucified and then Later in the chapter, this portion which we have read, where Jesus makes reference to his body and to his blood, this stirs up all of these ideas embedded deeply in the souls of the disciples. So Jesus is crucified at the time of the Passover, fulfilling what is in effect prophesied for us in Exodus chapter 12. But how does it happen? Why does it happen? How does it happen that the Son of Man is crucified? When I was in my late teens and early 20s, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber gave us an answer to the question, 
how did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? The answer was given in that uh, musical, that rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar. For those of you who remember Jesus Christ Superstar. And the answer that was given in that rock opera was that Jesus was a victim. He was a victim of the designs and the machinations, the political intrigue, the suspicions, the fears of various human beings, whether the high priest and the Sanhedrin or Pilate and Herod and other Roman officials. Jesus was the victim of his own self-delusion. He was confused. He wasn't quite sure why these things were happening to him and exactly what was going to happen to him. And, and so he became a victim of forces outside his control. Or then maybe more recently, you've read or you've seen the book, the film, The Da Vinci Code, which, which really, frankly, isn't concerned with the death of Jesus at all, which in fact denies that Jesus died at all. In fact, wants to suggest, and it's, it really is profoundly troubling that people read Dan Brown and think Dan Brown is the gospel rather than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the real focus is not upon the death of Christ, not upon the circumstances that led to his crucifixion, but the emphasis is upon Jesus and Mary Magdalene and their, their romance, if you will, that leads to the birth of a child or children. Not for Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The answer to the question, why did Jesus die, you find from Jesus himself. Jesus was determined to die. As you read through this narrative, be very clear about this fact, that Jesus is the one who is in control here. It isn't Herod, it isn't Pilate, it isn't Judas, it isn't Caiaphas, it isn't the high priest, the Sanhedrin. Jesus is the one who is in control. If you look back at those first verses of chapter 26, we didn't read these verses, but in those first couple of verses, specifically verse 2, Jesus says to his disciples, you know that after two days, meaning two days from now, two days from this day, two days hence, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus, this is, the, this is what is suggested in this language, indicated in this language. Jesus is saying to his disciples in two days, I, the Son of Man, will be delivered up to be crucified. Read the next three verses, 3, 4, and 5. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, verse 5, but, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, Caiaphas and the other leaders and Judas, who is complicit in all of this, they have designs on Jesus, Judas to betray Jesus. Caiaphas and Annas and the others uh, to put Jesus out of the way because he's a 
problem to them. He's tr- How come he's troubled? Well, the people are following him. The people uh, have cried out, Hosanna. The people have identified him as the son of David. And Jesus hasn't discouraged that identification. And those in charge understand that the best time to effect their plans is after the feast of the Passover. After the thousands of people who have converged upon Jerusalem have dispersed and gone back to their homes, then when the crowds are gone, that will be the time to seek Jesus out, arrest Him, arraign Him, convict Him, and execute Him. So you see, you've got two different plans regarding the death of Jesus. Two different days in view. The day that Jesus has in view and the day that the high priest and the Sanhedrin have in view. But who's in charge here? Who is in control of all of this? Who is the one who has determined that he will die? And not only that he will die, but precisely and specifically when he will die. Who is the one who is the incarnate sovereign Lord and governor of all things, who possesses all power and all authority. That's what Jesus reminded his disciples in John 10. I have authority to lay down my life. I lay it down of my own will. Nobody takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down and to take it up again. Who is the one who is in control of these things? Jesus is not muddle-headed about this. Jesus is not confused. Jesus is not at the mercy of forces outside of his control. He holds, by the authority given to him from the Father, he holds Judas in his hands. He holds Caiaphas and Annas in his hands. He holds the Sanhedrin in his hands. He holds Herod and Pilate in his hands. He holds the distant king, the emperor Caesar, in his hands. He holds the stars and the moons, the vastness of the expanse of the universe, in his hands. It is his purpose that is being accomplished here. Yes, through human agency. Yes, through human means. This is not the time. We could do this some other time. This is not the time to try to resolve this tension that is in our minds between the absolute, unmitigated, sovereign power and purposes of God and human responsibility. We affirm them both. My point for you here now is to underscore this reality. It is Jesus' purpose that is being accomplished. He was determined to die. And not only to die, but when and where he would die. And he accomplished that purpose so that his death, according to his design, together with the Father, his design was accomplished. Jesus was determined to die. He says in verse 18, go into the city to a certain man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. 
So Jesus was determined to die, and then Jesus was determined to die for sinners. He was determined to die for sinners. Now here's the point at which to ask this question again. Who should be here? Who should be here in this service of worship where the great King of glory has been summoned to come as a participant, not just an observer, not a guest, but who has been summoned as the King of glory to this place as a participant, to receive as a participant the praise that is due his name. Who should be here? Who should be at this table? Think back to the Passover night or the night when the Lord instituted the Supper of the Lord and ask yourself the question, who ate with Jesus at that time? Who ate with Jesus around that table? Who received the emblems of his body and his blood? Judas is already gone. Matthew's gospel doesn't make this so clear But in the other Gospels, it becomes evident that after verse 25 and after Judas has been exposed as the traitor, Judas leaves and Jesus remains with the other 11 disciples. But don't lose sight of who is there. Yes, Judas, the betrayer, has gone. Yes, Judas, the one who has denied Christ, has gone. But think about who's at the table. Peter is at the table. Thomas, the doubter, is at the table. The other nine disciples, all of whom Jesus says in verse 31, will be scattered, all of whom will leave and betray him, will abandon him at his moment of greatest need. All of them save John, who with Mary... And Mary, the mother of Jesus, will be found at the cross. The rest are gone, leaving Jesus, fearing for their own lives, loving, loving their lives and the preservation of their lives more than Jesus, who was giving his life for their lives that they might live. Who was there at that table? Peter was there. The great contrast in these narratives is between Peter and Judas, isn't it? Uh, Peter, who in just a few short hours would follow Jesus after he has been arrested, but who then three times would deny Jesus, would repudiate his association with Jesus. Peter, who would watch Jesus from a distance, watch him be beaten and mocked, watch him be spat upon, and who then repeatedly would deny any knowledge of him on the third occasion. You can read it at the end of this narrative, the end of chapter 26. At the end of that whole scenario as it unfolds, Peter calls down a curse upon himself, calling heaven and earth to witness his lies as he denies any association with Jesus. Rather facing 
This is what it means when it says that Peter called down a curse upon himself, rather facing the judgment of God than running the risk of having his life taken from him because of his association with Jesus. Who was at that table? With whom did Jesus break bread? With whom did Jesus share the cup? Peter. And if you read Luke's account of this, you get to the end again of this account. Luke tells us that at the very moment when the rooster crowed three times, Jesus looked at Peter. Can you imagine following that closely, watching Jesus suffer those beatings and that mockery within earshot of Jesus, denying any association with him at all, within earshot of Jesus, calling down a curse upon his head rather than associating with Jesus. And then right when the rooster crows, Jesus turns and fixes his gaze upon Peter. And Peter instantly, Mark says, breaks down. And Matthew and Luke say, weeps bitterly. With whom did Jesus break bread? With whom was Jesus willing to sit at table? Peter. Now what's the difference between Peter and Judas? It's a great passage. I just read this last night. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? It isn't that Judas' heart was full of evil and madness and Peter's wasn't. But it is that Peter, by the grace of God, found that his madness drove him to repentance. His madness led to a breakdown and weeping, bitter tears of repentance because of his sin against Jesus. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? The difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas' madness drove him to this last and final act of self-preservation, taking his own life. But Peter, by the grace of God, was driven to deep, heartfelt, convulsive repentance because of his sin. Jesus determined to die Jesus determined to die for people like Peter. Repentant sinners. Sinners who know who they are, who know what they need, and who by the grace of God understand that Jesus by his death secures for them a place of safety and of life, and they flee to that place. 
And then the last thing. Boy, and I wish I could camp on this for an hour. Jesus was determined to die. And He was determined to die for sinners. And He was determined to die for sinners to know joy, to have joy. There are three things that Jesus talks about in this passage. And again, I'd love to take an hour to unpack them, maybe three hours, an hour for each one, but I'll just suggest them to you. Three things that Jesus says as he institutes this supper. He refers to his body, his body which is given, his body which is broken, his body which is the source of life for the disciples, just as that lamb that was slain sustained life. That's what's in that figure. The life of Jesus sustains our lives. This affirmation of faith this morning, I didn't pick this. Zach didn't pick it. Jesus picked it. Because Jesus wanted reinforced for us us this morning this reality that we, though Jesus is in heaven, are nevertheless flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone and live and are governed forever by His Spirit as members of this one body governed by one soul, Jesus. His life sustains our lives. He is in heaven. We are on earth. But this sacrament reminds us and even becomes a means by which the risen Christ, by His Spirit, sustains our lives. His body, His life, sustains our lives. You can never live without Jesus. We sometimes think that the gospel is for people out there. It's for those who don't know and who need to know, and that is true, but the gospel is for us in here. The Lord's Supper was given to the disciples. The Lord's Supper is given to the church to remind the church that the church can never do without Jesus. And then he takes the cup, the blood that is shed for the remission, for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Certainly for those outside who have not heard the gospel, the cross is there as a place of refuge and safety. But as the church, never forget that you need this blood. You need this blood. You need it for cleansing. Jesus gave it to His disciples that they might be reminded of their ongoing need of cleansing and forgiveness. Peter needed it again and again and again. Here's a little phrase. The gospel is the gospel for the lost and the found. It's one gospel for the lost and the found. And then here's this third thing. And I'm just stunned and staggered by this. Verse 28, Jesus says, This blood is the blood of the new covenant in my blood, given for many for the forgiveness of sins. And there's a very strong word in verse 29 that doesn't come through in the English renderings of this so much. It is as though Jesus said, but, but, understand this. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine 
until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Now, what is that all about? Well, just notice in the text that the language has changed a bit as Jesus refers to the cup. When he's talking about forgiveness and cleansing, it is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. But when he talks about the blessings of the kingdom, it becomes the fruit of the vine. One cup representing different things. And in this verse 29, Jesus is saying to his disciples, I will not enjoy the fullness of my Father's kingdom until you are with me in my Father's kingdom so that we might enjoy it together. I was driving down A1A the other day and passed the South Beach Grill. First time I passed it, I thought, boy, that's a nice little restaurant. I'd like to go there for dinner and see what it's like. And I pulled into the parking lot and I looked into the windows and there were linens. The tables were beautifully set. There were flowers. And I thought, no, I'm not going to eat here now because I won't be able to enjoy it if Barb isn't with me. So I'm going to go the first time to enjoy that restaurant with my wife because my happiness will not be complete in that setting if my wife is not with me. There is some sense in which Jesus will not know the full measure of the joy of his Father's kingdom until each of us is there with him to enjoy that fruit of the vine together. And so that gives you hope. What does the gospel mean? It means forgiveness. It means life. And it means hope. That the day is coming when the Son who has loved you and lived for you and died for you will return for you and will take you into that glory where you will sit at table with Him and enjoy all of the fullness and blessedness of the Father's house. Jesus was determined to die. He was determined to die for sinners. He was determined to die for sinners for their joy. Let's pray together and prepare our hearts as we, sing, as we uh, come to the Lord's table. Lord, please uh, do be with us. Help us uh, as we now gather about this table and as we remember these things, think on these things. Uh, may we be as amazed. May we marvel as the hymn writers through the centuries have marveled, as Peter must have marveled, as James and John and Philip and Thomas and all of the others must have marveled. May we marvel at a grace that would rescue us and forgive us and give us life and give us this great prospect of joy in your presence. Hear our prayer. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you to stand and we'll sing together hymn number 255. Oh, Jesus, we adore thee.